Hi, hi, everybody, and thanks for tuning in to what is this, the fifth episode of the Calzumius podcast. I'm Patrick McKenzie, better known as Patio11 on the internet, and I'm here with my co host, Keith Perhack. Hi, I'm Keith Perhack, not known on the internet. Yeah, so it's been an absurd amount of months since we did the last version of the podcast together. What's new and exciting with you, Keith? Oh, my God, so much. So I have a new daughter, which is fun. It takes a ton of time out of my life. But the main thing that I've been working on, non-family related, is new productization. So I'm sure you have a lot to talk about that as well. Just I've been doing consulting for about two years now, going on three. And it's gotten to the point where I want to start that whole productization thing. So I think that's what we're going to talk about today. Yeah, um, I think we're going to be kind of floundering around a little bit as always, but largely people have been talking to us, both folks who kind of want to start consulting, and we've covered that topic before, I feel, but also folks who are kind of feel like they're stuck in the freelancer slash consultant treadmill and want to get off of it and start a product business based on that. Exactly. And um, so more addressing that this time. So let's see. I quit consulting recently. And that isn't Congratulations. Very, that isn't very public on the internet, but boom, it's <laughs> out there now, I guess. So brief background, if you haven't tuned into the other podcasts, since about uh, April 2010-ish, I've done occasional consulting for largely business-to-business software-as-a-service firms. By the end of it, it was typically more successful firms in the industry so that we're doing between, say, 10 and $50 million a year in revenue. And I largely did my shtick for them. If you've been following me around the internet, you know, I love A-B testing, conversion optimization, pricing advice, running email campaigns, yada, yada, yada. And so basically, like, if you boil it down to a business card that was tweet-sized, I made money for software companies. And I did that for a while. And it was often kind of fun. But unfortunately, I got to the point where there was not much of a future for it. That isn't actually true. There was a future for it, but it wasn't a future that I wanted for myself. So, for example, you know, at the end of the last year, routinely bringing in business from, uh, you know, the fog creeks of the world, very successful companies at a certain amount of scale. And the kind of step up from doing fairly motivational things for them at their levels of scale was to, like, go into the Fortune 500 because very other people could continue to generate kind of, like, the growth in my weekly rates that I wanted. And had that happen at the start of this year. And um, obviously I'm NDA'd because the Fortune 500 company and their legal department is better funded than the axis of evil and twice as nasty. But... Yeah, it didn't work out so well. And so after that didn't work out so well, it had uh, collapsed in such a way to take out months of my consulting pipeline. And I was thinking, do I really want to start you know, rebuilding the consulting pipeline, which just means getting other engagements on the calendar, prospecting, talking to people who could potentially be good fits and whatnot, uh, with an idea of starting you know, to do more engagements starting in, say, August for delivery, and then having to pretty much like pound the ground every week from August to December to make my numbers for the year work out. Or... You know, was there a reason to do that? And looking at the growth of my product businesses, particularly a point reminder, which has been neglected for the last couple of years, in which I always say, oh, this is going to be the year where I actually work on it in a consistent manner. I just decided to kind of quietly wind down the business and focus more on my own stuff, which has been working out pretty well. I've probably done more coding on a point reminder in the last uh, month, month and a half than I have in the previous two years. So that's fun. Um, and that's something, I mean that I think a lot of people don't realize when they get into the consulting or the freelancing gig is that, especially I thought when I quit my job and I started freelancing, I was like, this is great. I'm going to be doing interesting programming and development work 80% of my time. (laughs) And that is the biggest lie ever. Um, Now, I I do still do a lot of development, less so now, but 90% of my time, honestly, is overhead. 
It's finding new clients, like you said, setting up that kind of funnel for your consulting business, right? So who's going to come in, scheduling that all, getting contracts signed, getting contracts done, talking with customers, talking about what you're going to do. And then you actually only spend a week or two weeks, depending on the contract, doing it, Mm -hmm. right? And the rest is all overhead. Mm -hmm. This is particularly true when you move from a uh, solo consultancy into a firm model, like, say, Keith has. I think, Keith, you do... um... You know, you're the principal at the firm and you have a bunch of contractors who occasionally work with you? Correct. So, so it's actually, um, I say that I do a little development. I do much less development now because I do mainly the planning work. So it's like we have to meet these target numbers. So we are going to do A, B, C, and D. And then I work with my devs and it's like, hey, let's accomplish this with one, two, and three. And then in 90% of the cases, they're the ones that are actually coding. Right. So... We talked about this in our earlier podcasts with uh, Brendan Dunn and company, but um, in the solo consultant model, you're typically doing pretty well if you can actually bill 75% of your time. So, you know, 75% of the time is actually like billing engagements and the other 25% of the time is overhead, prospecting for new engagements, taking your vacations, yada, yada, yada. When you move into a model where you're no longer the sole partner and you have to manage people, typically your billing efficiency drops into like the 50% region or less as your firm scales up. So, And then the remaining 50% is unbilled time where you are more managing your people or continuing to rain make, get the new engagements, do the prospecting, deal with the administrivia such that um, your team is able to sustain a 75% plus billing efficiency, which... That's one reason why when people switch from a solo consultant to having a team, their income actually typically goes down for the first while until they have enough people under them such that the, what's the word, leverage? Yeah, the leverage works out to more than replace their higher partner rate. Correct. Anyhow, so that's kind of where our consulting businesses were at. We frequently hear from other people when we're, you know, going to conferences and whatnot or just reading our inboxes that... They similarly have a certain amount of success doing the uh, consulting dance, but the word burnout is used very frequently. Consulting is sort of, I don't know if higher stress is the right word, but there's less stability than involved in W-2 employment, where you just have you know one boss that you need to keep happy. You often don't know where next month's paycheck is going to come from. And so this sort of thing motivates a lot of people to find something that's a little more stable for themselves. And there's a perception that, sorry, go go right ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I think there's also a lot of more concentrated work in consulting, Mm -hmm. where if you're, like you say, a WT employee and you have a project, you're there eight hours, maybe 10 hours, depending on where you work, a day. You don't have that huge rush for consulting. You line up your, you spend your time rainmaking, getting the um, consultants lined up, and then it's a week of solid work. Mm-hmm. or two weeks of solid work where you're not doing anything except these projects. You don't have any downtime for meetings. You don't have really time to just kind of screw around because you have a deadline, you have your milestones that you have to accomplish, and you have a very limited amount of time to do it. Right. One of the reasons consultants can justify our crazily weekly rates is that um, typically we parachute into the project and just grind it out. Uh, whereas with a W-2 employee, you know, every business has a cycle associated with it. And sometimes you have your busier periods and sometimes you have periods with a little more slack in them where you can have slack in a consulting engagement like that happens. But typically it's a result of at least one of the parties not being on the ball. So it doesn't happen quite so often. Uh, you know, you will typically spend fairly little time when you're billing out at 200 plus an hour uh, reading Reddit. So... One would hope, yeah. I actually had a client, NDA, who told me after the week was over, 
that I had accomplished more in three days than they had accomplished in six weeks. Or sorry, six months. Six months. And he was like, how do you do it? And I'm just like, well, honestly, because I don't have to deal with your meetings every day. I don't have to deal with any fires that come up. If someone says, oh, someone hacked the server or A and B's um, privacy policy isn't correct, I don't have to drop everything and deal with that. All I have to do is concentrate 100% on the milestones in our engagement. Mm -hmm. And that gives a lot of freedom to just be really creative and to be really, really productive. Mm -hmm. And now I've also done, I'm in the middle of a couple of um, engagements right now that are much more freeform, that they're mainly for friends or friends of friends. It's not a, okay, here's a week of my time. It's, okay, we'll do about eight, ten hours a week. And what I've actually found is it's much harder to do that. It's much harder to have that ramp up and to ramp down and to balance it between my other clients. Mm -hmm. I would actually highly recommend, and you've recommended this to me before, to not do even, definitely not do hourly, but not even do daily. Like get your um, contracts as a weekly rate, Mm -hmm. block off the time and say, this is what we're going to do in this amount of time. Otherwise, things just sprawl. They really just sprawl out of control. I also think that it's generally sort of an anti-pattern if you have any sort of uh, serious work scheduled for part of your time and then have friends or friends of friends engagements. So I don't know, you and I are friends and occasionally we do work together, but it's difficult to kind of maintain the correct level of professional distance with friends. Um, Definitely. It's also difficult to schedule them against the rest of your business if, for example, the rest of your business is actually charging meaningful rates and then you have a grandfather rate with a friend where you're charging, you know, what you were charging when you were stupid and just out of college. Not right. that you were stupid or just out of college when you started <laughs> consultancy. I was not out of college. Um, I will not say anything about the being stupid when I first started. Yeah. Because <laughs> I, I think we're all a bit stupid when we first start consulting. This is true. That's one reason why, and this is a little widely ranging, but um, people very rarely stick with their initial set of clients, um, partly because your business grows and it's difficult for all client relationships to grow with you. There were clients that I really, really loved working with that started working with me in my first year of consulting. And my rate went up from, I think it was $100 an hour when I started. And then by the tail end of the career, I was putting out uh, engagements that had 30000 a week or 50000 a week on the uh, estimate and winning them. And not all clients made that jump, <laughs> right. to put it mildly. Anyhow, yeah, I'm actually I'm actually in that same position right now where I'm working with a lot of clients and I'm starting to have to phase out my um, some of my older clients because they're still at the oh yeah a week of Keith's time is worth fifteen hundred dollars and it's just not anymore. Yeah, so let's see. We were talking about why people would want to quit and um, move to more of the perceived security and control that they get from running a product business where they're both able to confidently predict that they'll have enough uh, money to pay the rent next month, even if the pipeline doesn't work out at 100%, or if their cash flow management with the existing consultant clients doesn't work out at 100%. For example, there was a a thread on Hacker News recently where somebody, you know, he had been doing, let's say, six weeks of consulting for a particular client, and there was a $10,000 check that was floating out somewhere. And he really needed that $10,000 check, which the first way to never get screwed about a $10,000 check is to not really need it. But if you're in that position and the $10,000 will make a meaningful difference to you or your family, that can be a very difficult thing to have to juggle every month right. versus, say, having the typical SaaS model where you might be getting the same $10,000, but it's split between 40 accounts at $250 each, where you know, any one client deciding to be a screwball with regarding to paying their invoice doesn't necessarily give you the risk of homelessness. 
Right. It also ties you to your client. So if you have a large client that's paying you 10K a month or 20K a month or whatever Mm -hmm. in a retainer function, then losing that client hurts you a lot more than if you have maybe 200 customers for your product paying you $50 or $100 a month, right? Because losing any one of those clients or two of those, or sorry, one of those customers or two of those customers is not going to hurt you as much as losing that one big client, right? I think Brennan Dunn had a great line in his podcast recently. He said that if there's, if you're a W2 employee, you have one boss. And if you move into consulting and have three clients who are each responsible for about a third of your billing, you now have three bosses. Mm-hmm. Each of them is independently capable of getting peeved off at you and independently capable of having a material impact on your standard of living. Where if you move up to having 300 clients, you no longer have bosses. You have people whose business you can kind of take or leave. And in a good way. Mm-hmm. In a good way. Not in a um, screw you customers go home kind of way, but in a I find that you are more free to be creative and be engaged with the customer when you are not beholden to them. I think that's totally true. When you are 100% in that person's debt, you are much less likely to stick your head out um, and fight for what you believe in because you're not willing to rock the boat. Mm-hmm. Right. Not just fight for what you believe in, but also fight for the best possible outcome for the customer because sometimes what customers need and what they want are not exactly the same thing. And uh, given that giving them what they want is typically the best way to preserve the relationship. Sometimes as consultants, you might be incentivized to do things which you know, in your professional opinion, are not quite the best idea for them, which are the easiest thing that you could possibly sell them. For example, hmm. that's a hard example yeah, to come that's up. That's a hard with. example to come up with because I don't want any client, client, past client listening to this. Let's just say that there are. You can imagine that there are, you know, clients out there who, let's say, you do web design. And uh, you know that certain things convert better than other things. But, you know, the design has to get uh, signed off on not just by the your point of client contact at the company, but their boss as well. And a certain way of designing the page might be, say, have a little more visual flair to it. It makes it easier for their boss to sign off on it, where that would negatively uh, influence their conversions. And you know, ultimately, that they're not in the business to have a beautiful website. They're in the business to make shed loads of money selling their product to customers who will be happy to use it. But because you need to continue that relationship, you might be sort of perversely incentivized to give them the design that their boss will like rather than the design that will convince their customers to get into more business with them. I actually had a um, customer I can talk about, which he had loved music on his top page for some unknown reason. He was... Oh, God. I know. It was a real estate agency. Oh, God. And they insisted on putting... I was like, this will drop your conversions. People will run screaming from the page. The um, owner of the company told me, I've been doing this web thing for five years. I know what's going on. And I'm thinking to myself, I've been doing it for 15, but whatever. Anyways, at that point, we, were, we had Google Analytics. The numbers showed that the bounce rate went from something like 30% to 80%. Like people just ran screaming from the page. And nothing would convince him otherwise. Nothing. I gotta ask. I have a funny feeling what the answer is, but Keith, <laughs> is this one of your American clients or is this I, one of your Japanese clients? No, this um, this was a Japanese client who I dropped like a hot rock. I am shocked. Uh, shocked <laughs> to hear <this>. Yeah, no. Um, For, I would I would also drop an American client who said that to me as well, but I have had much better luck with my American clients. And just for everyone who's just now t- tuning in, Patrick has been telling me to drop my Japanese clients like a hot rock for quite some time. But Right. So uh, unfortunately, there's 
And don't get me wrong, there exist large classes of people who you should never ever work for in America, but you typically don't get to the top tiers of successful tech companies by being a client you could never ever work for. Whereas that is very, very common in <laughs> Japan, especially in our neck of the woods. And just empirically in Keith and I's businesses, it has been the reproducible problem that working with Japanese corporations has not been nearly as successful as working with American clients. They typically have a much lower peg for the amount they're willing to pay engineers or people who kind of look like engineers. Actually, Keith and I don't really look like engineers in Japan, but be that as it may. I would just say tech people. Right, tech people. Anything that deals with technology, like that whole internet thing. Right, that whole internet thing. That, that whole internet thing should cost $3,000 a month in Japan for the fully loaded cost of an engineer. Whereas in America, it's closer to $20,000. So if you ask for a ridiculously high rate, quote unquote, like the equivalent of, uh, say, $60 an hour, your Japanese clients will balk and balk hard at that. Whereas a $200 an hour rate in, well, let's say $100 rate in America is sort of the number that you get for just like putting out your shingle as a new consultant who knows how to do an in-demand technology stack even if you're not sophisticated about uh, bringing business value with that technology stack. Right. By the way, a lot of people ask, hey, I'm a freelancer and I don't charge $100 an hour. How do I get to the point where I can charge $100 an hour? And the answer is often just stop taking engagements at less than $100 an hour because you are in demand at the moment. Right. And I think a lot of people, there is a difference in that, in that you have to position yourself better. And this is kind of getting off topic, so I, I want to kind of close this thread <laughs> as soon as we finish this. But... You have to position yourself in a way that the $100 an hour is palatable to the um, person. I mean, you can't just say, oh, yeah, I'll code up your web page for $100 an hour. That's probably not going to fly. Right. Although lately rates have gotten so high that it may, it may fly in some cases. But if you position yourself, even if you are just coding up a web page for $100 an hour, if you position yourself in such a way that it shows that you are producing value to the business, and that's the biggest thing that you will deal with. And this is something we're going to talk about with productization with B2B over um, B2C is that if you are producing actionable results and business results to a company, they are willing to pay whatever. Mm-hmm. One of the common things that I'm looking for a new accountant here in Japan right now, and one of the things I've been talking about is accountancy rates because they really they go from just almost nothing to ungodly expensive. And I've been very clear. It's like anyone who can save me more than in my taxes more than I am paying them I'm happy to pay that. Right. There is no rate too high. Right. Exactly. I mean, if I pay you $10,000 a year and you're saving me $15,000 a year, I'm making $5,000. I'm very happy with that. So, but that's kind of getting off totally true. a tangent. And, we, and we've kind of covered that topic in previous podcasts yeah. before. Um, let's go into kind of the models that people can use both when they're still consulting to kind of do a soft transition to productization and then the more hard transition later. Right. So let's see. One semi-productization model for consulting is to just get your clients from the point where you're doing individual engagements and no money comes into the company without a new engagement being proposed, a new statement of work getting issued, and a new contract negotiation to the point where you're getting money on a recurring basis from them. Right. So one model for that is called a retainer agreement. Keith, I think you have more on-the-ground experience with this than I do because I was stupid and never got retainer agreements. <laughs> so why don't you describe how you set that up with a typical company? Okay, so for the first year of consulting, I never had any retainer agreements. They're also hard to do in Japan, another reason why you should not try to do consulting in Japan. But eventually what it comes down to is that it is, after finishing an engagement, it behooves the company to have someone who understands 
kind of what's going on behind the scenes with the engagement. So if you're doing an A-B testing engagement, someone who knows the numbers can measure the impact and can essentially take the time every month to iterate. And that's a, it's a great word for startups, and it's really true. On, iterate on the engagement. So if I spend a week creating new landing pages, a new content management strategy for people to increase their SEO and a new lifecycle email, that's great. They've created that. But who's going to do the reporting? Who's going to do the new iterations of that every month? And if that's something that they're willing to do in-house, that's great. But most of the time when you have hired a consultant, there's two reasons. One is you don't know how to do it yourself. The other is you don't have the time to do it yourself. Mm -hmm. And that's a very big one. Even if there are very smart people in your company, they are involved with company things. So like we, like we were saying earlier, someone who is only focused on task A, B, and C is much more effective in getting those tasks done. And having someone every month, not at the full rate, so let's say you charge, for example, $10,000 a week, not someone who is going to charge you $10,000 every week, but someone who might charge $3,000 or $5,000 a month to come in maybe a day or so maybe a couple of, um, maybe like 10, 20 hours, and put together a report, come up with some new test ideas, approach them to the company, and implement them. Right. And this isn't just a great thing for the consultants. It's actually a great thing for the company because you would not be, this both has the perception and like the reality of decreasing project risk. You won't believe how many projects I worked on where they were a success as of the day I handed them off to the company. But then for, you know, internal focus reasons or whatnot, they just didn't get somebody to kind of do the feed and watering of the new infant, and then the infant died. Right. So, for example, you know, they want to protect their investment in, say, $20,000 in setting up the A-B testing system or getting them running. But they might not just, just not have enough bandwidth internally to make that somebody's job. Or they might assign it to a particular engineer, and then that engineer gets busy with other priorities in the company, and then, well, that one's easy to drop because it wasn't his baby given that it was your baby originally, just telling people that you can be on top of that for them. And as a result, it's going to continue being successful and the engagement won't get wasted is a massive value add. Right. And it can be the natural continuation of the thing that you did for them. For example, you know, if you're starting with A-B testing, then obviously continuing to review A-B testing results every month and then uh, send them a report saying, here's how much money we made in the last month. I've tested these new three things this month. These two got a null result. They failed to create any um, meaningful value for the business. And this last one increased your sales by 5%. Congratulations, BTW, invoice due as usual, is you know a big win for them. And companies obviously, as the consultant reason for doing that is when you back it to an hourly rate, like the amount of time it takes you to implement three new A-B tests is probably going to be pretty piddling relative to the amount of money it took, uh, amount of time it took to win and deliver the engagement in the first place. But you can conceivably get strong amounts of ongoing value for the, for the customer for, from doing that and then charge them relative to the strong amounts of ongoing value rather than the marginal amounts of additional work required. Right. And this is something that can really, because you're charging for an ongoing service and you're charging for an ongoing service that is part creative and part administrative. Mm -hmm. This is something that is also very good for working within the consultancy. So if you're not a one-man consultancy, what you do is you have the person, your administrator who worked with you, you say, we have clients A, B, C, and D. Please write up the reports for them. Mm -hmm. So they know how to get the reports. They give you the reports. You look at them. You say, okay, these are not performing well. These are performing well. We're going to change these A, B, C, and D. You go in and change them. You say, and then we'll send the email. Right. It doesn't. Right. So, typically in a multi-person consultancy, you have the A team or the partners 
uh, win the engagements, and then you might often have delivery of the engagements be handled by people that have been trained by the A-team or the partners, but are not necessarily at that level themselves. Right. That's particularly and... well-suited to retainer work because given that you've created a list of 15 things to try on, say, the customer's homepage, actually implementing that within the you know, visual website optimizer, which has already been set up, um, it does not require the partner's personal attention. They've already dictated that most of the creative thing, you just need somebody to actually go in, do the button clicking, and then generate a report and send it to the right people at the right time every month. Right. And a lot of people, um, I've had a couple of clients balk at this idea that, well, I'm paying you to do the work, aren't I? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, it's taking my time from being creative, from coming up with the ideas, to working on ideas and strategies for the company in order to write the emails or to pull a report. So depending on the report, that can take three to five hours. Mm -hmm. So that's three to five hours that I'm spending crunching numbers instead of looking at the report and figuring out what needs to be done, right? So it's, it's not value-added work. Right. People who can generate SQL queries or in pathological cases, people who are capable of downloading Excel spreadsheets and then copy-pasting the numbers into a PowerPoint are probably quite a bit cheaper and just as effective as the founder would be in doing that same amount of uh, kind of grunt work. So right. it's... But someone who can look at that PowerPoint and say, oh, crap, here are the trends that we need to fix now. Right is a much, much different value proposition. Right, right. And making sure that that PowerPoint actually gets looked at as opposed to being you know, left on a server somewhere with no one being assigned to actually look and act on it every month. Correct. Let's see, we mentioned so, that. That would have been honestly transformatively good for my consulting business. So obviously, I, the consulting business was always sort of a part-time thing for me. I never did more than about 20% time on it in a year. So about 10 weeks of consulting. But let's say I had you know, 15 consulting clients. I think, hmm, let's say out of the 15, probably 10 of them would have received enough value in the engagements that they would have happily signed off on having me, you know, continuing to keep an eye on things for them over time. And even assuming like a fraction of my weekly rate as the, um, as the monthly rate for the consultant, monthly rate for the retainer agreement, that would have probably had a baseline value for the consultancy of upwards of 20 to 30,000 a month in billings, right. which if that had happened and, you know, Hypothetically, say that happened and my consultancy uh, still had the same problem this year with regards to the pipeline going forward. Probably wouldn't have killed it because you know, it would be still very worth uh, the, the time to keep around to you know, continue servicing those clients and then uh, kind of build up the forward-looking pipeline. But right. given that I did not have that, it didn't have enough residual value for uh, me to justify keeping around which it's no skin off my nose because I have, you know, other products in the mix. But if I was, if consulting was like my primary uh, form of income or my sole source of income, then I would honestly be in quite a pickle at the moment because I'd be uh, essentially unemployed right. or unemployed until August. And then I'd probably be doing things like, you know, banging down the bushes to get engagements and not have the uh, amount of pickiness that I can typically generate, typically exercise with regards to finding engagement, you know, finding a client that I can really do good work for and who is willing to pay the prevailing rates. Right. Anyhow, other things that you can sell to clients besides uh, retainer agreements. Let's go into um, source code, or licenses rather, because that's, that's a really simple one that's an easy push from consulting or development work. Okay, then let's talk about that. great example of this, by the way, is if you look at RailsLTS.com. So it's something that I suggested a few months ago. I'm still on Rails 2.3, and if you've been following my blog, you know Rails 2.3 has 
had some severe security issues in the last six months. And it's also at the end of life for the product, which means the open source team that sports Rails, Rails Core, doesn't want anything to do with Rails 2.3 anymore. It's like, well, if you find a security bug in it, good luck. But they don't want to be in charge of writing patches or uh, managing releases for it anymore. So I said that basically any uh, consultancy which does a significant amount of Rails development and has a lot of clients on 2.3 could get a significant line of business by uh, supporting it in a commercial fashion. And what does that mean? They do the work they're already doing. If a vulnerability is discovered for 2.3, write the patch, uh, do the work to release the gem for it, but then charge on an ongoing basis for a sort of guaranteed access to those gems in a, to those security releases in a particular guaranteed time frame. And actually, I urgently needed to buy this for my business because I use Rails 2.3 in Appointment Reminder, which has hospitals as customers. And I can't just tell hospitals, yeah, um, I'm using an old unpatched version of Rails on my server. This technically means that your patient information could be rooted at any time. That's not a very effective sales pitch. So needed to move to supported version. And I kind of talked around uh, with a few people and found a consultancy called Macandra in Germany, which um, they have a dozen people working for them and they have 50 clients who are currently on Rails 2.3. And we hammered out a way such that I paid them a guaranteed amount of money per year, $10,000 actually. Fair chunk of change, but um, cheap relative to hiring Rails programmers. And they guarantee that within 24 hours of having a severe uh, vulnerability released for Rails that they will write a patch for it and incorporate it into their privately uh, distributed fork of Rails 2.3. And now, so here's the difference between this and what we were talking earlier about with the retainer contract is that they are not going to patch your software. Right. They're not going to they patch do. my software. They didn't write my software. All they're doing is taking extraction from stuff that they've written for other people and selling it to me as a product that I can just basically buy in a, uh, with my credit card. You know, right. they don't, I think I get something like three hours of guaranteed integration support with it, but it's not one of their partners will be individually discussing uh, with me about this. It's just, it exists. I have access to it and I can buy that. And similarly, you can go to railslts.com and buy that um, without having to, you know, go through the whole dance of write a proposal, get a master services agreement and a statement of work written to wire transfers right. over to Germany, yada, yada. It's just something you can, you know, buy on the SaaS model, basically. Right. And so two things I want to say about this. First of all, they are not a sponsor. We just love them. Yeah. Um, and the second They're thing They're the opposite is... of a sponsor. They sponsored us for negative $10,000. <laughs> Ow. Um, that's, by the way, the single largest check I've ever written for my business. And I was thrilled to write it because it means that I will not be locked up for losing patient information. Yep. Yep. I actually will talk about the big check that I am writing tomorrow, in fact. But I'll talk about that in a minute. But what I do want to say on this is... People will think, oh, they created a product and they're selling it. What's the difference between that and productization? Well, this isn't a product they created. This is something they have to do for their day-to-day existence as a consulting agency. So they're um, developing consulting agency. They have a lot of clients that they support on these recurring revenue, on these retainer type things. So they have to do the work anyways. So what they're doing is the work that they've done overall, they're then reselling. And so I do something very similar to this. So I've been doing consulting on info products for about two years now, and I do a lot of work with things like AWeber and Fusionsoft, um, One Shopping Cart, just all these great or not so great systems, I won't say which is which, that need kind of coercing, right? They don't work exactly how the customers mm-hmm. want. The customers generally want different functions out there. So I have essentially my toolbox, mm-hmm. 
And any one of these can be a licensable piece of software for a client. Now, not in a SaaS model, because that requires user interface a lot of time, but it's something that I can go to a client and say, hey, you know you want to run a contest that um, interfaces with AWeber and tweets people on their iPhone when they're sleeping, etc. Who knows? I have a great piece of software that does that. So we can work out some sort of licensing agreement in addition to the consulting. So we do the consulting engagement. We get it all set up in addition to other stuff. And then in order to keep using that software, you pay a recurring fee of X, right? Mm-hmm. Or even depending on the uh, difficulty of the tool, it could be like a you know one-time downloadable thing with a one-time license fee. Right, exactly. For example, you know, if you've uh, there's a great example of uh, in the Rails world about somebody developed a basically like a skeleton bare bones app for doing Rails with uh, kind of like the SaaS charging model in place, which obviously a lot of people want to do. I think it's at RailsKit.com, RailsKits, uh, whatever. You know, Google it up. Uh, you could you know pay three hundred dollars for that and get all the uh, stupid crufty work of taking credit cards done for you, which um, I happen to know that, that was greatly successful for his company. And that was basically an extraction out of, oh God, I've written the same code 10 times for 10 different consulting clients with very slight variations between them. Given that all the value for the engagement comes for what we layer on top of that code, we could you know, extract that basic user model and the, you know, the subscribe and unsubscribe pages for the application, extract that, put it into a Git repository somewhere that could be conveniently consumed by people outside the company and then charge for access to that. Exactly. And that, by the way, that convenient consumption is very important. There's a lot of things that are good enough to do internally, given that it's only going to be you and people you know who have used it, which are not good enough to be used externally. So I do a very bit, uh, small bit of angel investing, and I recently invested in a company called binpress.com, which is basically trying to do a dual licensing model for open source projects. So if you let me give a little plug for them there. The dual license model for open source is you have one uh, license which is very permissive, such as uh, GPL or MIT, typically GPL, uh, because GPL plays better with it, that you allow anybody to use it. And then you have a different license, which you sell to people, which lets them use the same source code in a less restricted manner. For example, the big thing with GPL licenses is if code is GPL licensed, it uh, is viral and it infects the rest of the application. And uh, you can't have GPL code within an application which is so- sold on the iPhone App Store, for example, because Apple is just blanket does not allow you to do that. So, for example, if you happen to be a mobile developer and you open source any code, if you GPL it, you can sell anyone who actually wants to use it in an application that is put on the App Store a license that basically un-GPLs it with respect to them in particular. So, you know, a like a license to distribute it on the Apple App Store, which doesn't give them the right to the code. It just, like, it doesn't let them sell that code to other people. They get to see the code, they get to use the code, they get to embed the code in their products on the App Store, but that's the extent of it. That was actually a fairly common license for software developers prior to open source becoming such a big model. Red Hat also uses a similar variant on that, where you can use the Red Hat uh, distribution for free, but there's additional, like, dual license tools and whatnot that you can buy from them. I think they do that. So anyhow, deepinpress.com makes it easy to uh, facilitate that transaction between people. But that's, you know, not a transaction that you have to, you know, it's not even necessarily something that has to be doable via a website or uh, via credit card payment. You can just offer that to uh, consulting clients of yours where, hey, I have this 
rather than paying me two weeks uh, to write something for you from scratch and then get you getting the rights to it under a work-for-hire arrangement, there's some pre-existing code that I happen to have around that already does this. For a one-time payment of $1,000, I will write you a two-sentence email which allows you to use it in your product. But you don't retain rights to the code, I retain rights to the code. And that's the big one. I'm actually talking with clients now that are like, yes, we want to use the code, but we also want to resell it. And that's where things get really into the sticky situation, right? That's a, so, you should charge them at least 10 times as much, if not more. Exactly, exactly. Because once they have, and this is something you need to be careful with, especially if you're doing dev work as consulting, is what is what is owned by who, right? So I was saying earlier that I write code for like interfacing with Aweber. Who owns that code? Do you own that code and, and the client has a license? Does the client own that code and you are? Is it a work for hire? Mm-hmm. In which case, if it's a work for hire, you cannot use that code for another client. So there's a lot of things that you need to be careful with um, looking at that are way out of the scope of this podcast, but right. just Check something to keep in mind. If you need to um, know about this, by default, you will probably be writing things under a work for hire, which is definitely get a lawyer to look over your standard MSA. Often, by the way, master service agreement, which clarifies the assignment of intellectual property, um, the right. most consultant beneficial thing you could do is to give clients a limited, non-exclusive license to the code that you write for them, but uh, doesn't like assign ownership of it to them. Many clients will push back against that, and that's basically a non-starter at some larger clients, which will be forcing you to use their MSA and to basically work under a work-for-hire. And that's something where you just have to, you know, work out the numbers. Are you charging larger clients enough such that you not getting any capital improvement as a result of working for them is a worthwhile thing for you? Uh, Right, exactly. And you need to keep in mind, and I've had a lot of conversations with this, and like Patrick says, get a lawyer. They are worth their weight in gold for things like this. Mm -hmm. Because if it is a work for hire and you, for example, have a tool or something that you've been using in the past and you use it for that client, that is no longer your tool. Right, and that can be very, very unfortunate, particularly if that tool is already running on other people's systems. Exactly. Oh, God, a situation you do not yeah. want to be in. So, long story short, get a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, so we're going to talk about info products next, right? Yes, I believe so. So, man, that word info products, I hate it with burning passion in my soul. <laughs> I had another word that you hate, I had another description that you hated even more, but I will not say it. Just, I'm not going to rile your anger. Okay. So yeah, the way I always describe it is productized consulting, at least for my business, because they were largely outgrowths of the sort of thing that I did for uh, consulting on a routine basis. For example, last October, I released a thing called Hacking Lifecycle Emails, which was basically a way to use lifecycle emails and drip marketing campaigns to sell more software for software businesses. That's obviously a theme that I talk about a lot. And that course basically came out of my experience of doing a particular engagement for consulting clients five times and figuring well, either could, I could continue doing that consult engagement for five new clients every year, or I could distill it into five hours of video, teach people how to do it for themselves, and then sell it at a fraction of what the uh, price to get me into do the engagement was. Right, exactly. And, and people will look at this and say, oh, but aren't you just underwriting yourself? So you're taking essentially a 20000 or $30,000 engagement, mm-hmm. and you're compressing it into essentially, I forget how much you sold it for, 500 um, yeah, originally 250 and then 500 after the discount period was over. But so then you're you're essentially cannibalizing your own consulting. But yeah, what that this is does the exact is, opposite of the truth. <laughs> it is. It is because what happens is not only are more people going to get it, but it's also a gateway drug, mm-hmm. in a manner of speaking. Because to be perfectly honest, going through 
And you do not pull any punches in the video course. You say everything that you do during a consultancy with regards to lifecycle emails. You go through every step. You go through everything that you talk about with your clients. The difference is that your clients have not been doing this for, what now, three years, five years? Mm-hmm. For lifecycle emails. They can get started. They can do a lot. With that um, info product, you can go from zero to quite a bit very quickly. Mm-hmm. At the same time, it does not hold the same amount of value as hiring Patrick, for example, or hiring you as a consultant to do a week's worth of work. Right. Um, and that goes back to the conversation we were having earlier about when you have a consultant, they don't deal with anything but that project. Right. And In addition to... Oh, go ahead. This is partly a reflection of all clients wanting advice, which is exactly specific to their interests. Something which Amy Hoy says a lot is that if you tell people, you know, uh, if you are starting a new software business, you should probably um, make it in B2B because B2B customers are willing to pay a lot more for your software and will have less issues with buying it than B2C customers will. Then Amy gets a lot of emails from people saying, so I'm thinking of starting a new business. Should I start it in B2B or B2C? And when she tells them, you specifically, Bob, should start it in B2B because it will allow you to charge a lot more money and have less issues with selling it to customers, Bob will say, wow, thanks for writing that specific advice to me. I often joke that consulting clients really want to buy um, dramatic blog post ratings as a service. But it definitely seems like they really need to hear, with respect to your particular business, after looking at all the factors, I will give you the same advice that I give to everybody else, but directly told to you. Right. But that's a you know, it, risk reducer the, for the company, because there could be some factor that they're not aware of that could you know, contravene your advice in you know, the 1% case. And they just want to make sure they're not the 1% case prior to uh, committing to do something that you know, might be worth six or seven figures to the business. Right, exactly. And it's also a matter of work. So I'm, I'm having a contractor right now redo my yard, finally, because it was just overgrown with weeds. And he is of the position that, hey, anyone can do anything. And that's a great position to be from. And for free, he told me essentially what I need to do. He says, you need to get a backhoe, you need to go here, you need to pour your concrete. I'm, and after step three, I'm like, I understand how to do all this. When am I going to have the time? When am I going to have the inclination to do this? I would rather have you do this for my specific situation. Right. Yeah, and the words, first you rent a backhoe has to be like the, and then you read two weeks worth of free information on the internet of like the garbage, right? Um, I had a great email recently, and I want to repeat it for everybody because it's so true. If clients have like internal staff, they could be giving the project to. And if Mm -hmm. the client has to have the internal staff like read up on, you know, what the information is that they need to start the product, like become an expert at the thing that you already have, you know, five plus years of domain expertise in, even if it's totally free information, they're going to be writing a $10,000 payroll check with a memo saying, reading free information on the internet. So right. free is not free for them anymore after it has a, like actual clock ticking on their employees. So that's a pricing anchor that you can use both for your consulting services and for uh, info products that put a curation layer on top of the quote-unquote wonderful amounts of free information that's floating around on the internet if you have the time to search for it and hunt through all the garbage and whatnot. Right. And that's another reason why your info product and other info products in general are so attractive is because, yes, the information, I I will say, the information that you give on your um, info product, most of it, I would say maybe 50, 60% is available elsewhere on the internet. Um, You would probably have. I'd say 90% plus if you knew where to look. Okay. I was being generous, but (laughs) if you're going to say that, then I think it would take at least three to four months to find it all. 
Right. It's not like I have some uber secrets with it, which I keep from people. If you want to, you could probably reproduce most of it from just reading, let's see, the 350,000 words in my blog, 100,000 words I've posted on Hacker News comments, and watching approximately 15 hours of conference talks which I've given. And if you have enough time to do that, you know, mazel tov, you don't have to pay me any money for anything. Right. But who has that time? And this is something that I think a lot of people miss before they get into consulting, right? And before they get into real business, when you're an employee, your time to yourself is not that valuable in many cases because you have a salary, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're sitting there dicking around on Reddit, if you're um, sitting there reading free information on the internet, you still get paid the same as if you were coding constantly, right? It all matters about your workload. However, to your employer, that is a very different value proposition. Mm -hmm. No employee anywhere is free and they are so expensive. People who don't have employees don't understand how expensive employees are. I think primarily because people see their own salary and they think the salary is the cost of employing them, whereas employers, you know, do the automatic add another 50 to 100 percent to it because they know that uh, employees cost taxes, benefits, yada, 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 overhead. Room, space, computers, everything. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Free sodas, $10,000 worth of sodas every every month. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, my my employees drink a lot. <laughs> oh, the soda. Oh. I hate soda as a perk. Like soda as a perk, the message that that sends to me is that the company expects you to be a stupid twenty-something who can be convinced to give up like tens of thousands of dollars in salary or meaningful amounts of equity in return for lots and lots of free commodity product, which they could purchase for like sixty cents a can themselves. Right. Oh, soda disgusting. <laughs> I, I hit I hit a sore spot. It yeah. seems like. Uh, uh, okay, so let's fulminate <laughs> a little less about soda and how uh, tech companies like to screw their young and kind of uh, clueless employees and more on how to actually start from doing info products given that you're already a fairly successful freelancer consultant. What can you make an info product about? Like, what's a good topic for it? Wow. That's, a, that's an open-ended question. Honestly, if I had the answer, I'd be making a ton of them. Well, why don't we start with... Like particular generalizable tasks which are needed by a lot of people that you've ended up delivering to a lot of people before. So, right. for example, you've said that you've done lots of work with integrating various for uh, companies that do training as a business, integrating their AWeber and Infusionsoft and yada yada together. So, right. you know, obviously they have API documentation somewhere, and that's something that you could snap together with enough time or with downloading some code to do it for you. But you might be able to produce, for example, a 50-page book on how to integrate X, Y, and Z together. Right, exactly. And this is, this is one of the problems that as a domain knowledge expert you come into is that you don't know what other people don't know. Mm -hmm. It's very difficult. And this is one of the things. It's like if Patrick was to come to me and say, what would I do an info product about? I could give him maybe five, six ideas. But he asked me and I'm like, I have no idea because I don't know what of my knowledge is marketable. Like I know it as a consulting style, but not for a, I could put this in an ebook, et cetera. And now it's interesting. You mentioned the Infusionsoft. Jermaine Griggs has done just that. So he's been using Infusionsoft pretty much since it started. And he's built up a large consultancy just on getting Infusionsoft to perform the way that marketers want. And it's, it's doing very well for him. So no matter what you do, if you have done it over and over again, and what I do is, for any client, I have a swipe folder. And whenever a client says, oh, wow, I never would have thought of that, or hey, would it be possible to do this? If you have one client 
saying, is this possible? There's a chance that other people are saying it as well. And this might be something to go back through and look at, say, when you're thinking of an info product, when you're thinking of what information you can package up, it's like, well, here's A, B, and C, and D, which I think are a 10-minute piece of work, but apparently produce a lot of value to my clients in the past. Mm -hmm. Speaking of uh, hitching your star to an existing product or service, so many of us have tools, be that uh, you know a software package or a service that they use that we really like. Given that the profile for that tool is often large than our own, larger than our own personal profile, writing like the definitive guide on how to use that tool, you know, vis-a-vis -a, -vis a particular industry or attempting to do a particular task, can be a very worthwhile way to get started on info products. Um, I don't do it for consulting clients that often, but I have like a legitimate amount of expertise on getting Twilio to work in a production environment because Appointment Reminder, for example, actually like runs in production. And so, you know, no documentation for a company is ever complete. And I kind of know like the missing bits to the Twilio documentation. And okay, after you've gotten the quick start, here's how you get into production without having uh, clients want to break your neck when, you know, it uh, distributed denials service them. Or uh, here's how to you know do it in um, to test Twilio applications correctly, and and this is something. Sorry, sorry to break in real sure. quick, but this is something that for an employer or for someone who wants to use Twilio in a production environment, instead of going through sixty free blogs with information that may or may not be correct, or that may be old, or honestly may just be horrible, having it all into one piece of information that is paid, and this is the key. Paid information has a sense of quality about it, mm -hmm. and it relies on the person selling it to keep that quality, because otherwise no one's going to buy, right? It's free for someone to post crappy information on the internet. Mm -hmm. To get someone to actually be buying your information, it has to be good enough that people are going to buy it and not refund it and tell their friends, mm -hmm. right? Right, so just the act of putting a price tag on something increases the perceived value uh, behind it. Again, you know, I've done essentially dramatic blog post readings for clients where they could have read the exact same advice on my blog, and in some cases they had like read the identifiable post that I was about to quote them, and I just told them that straight to their face, and they said, "Wow, we're going to get on that right away." Um, <laughs> but yeah, you know, you can like you can look at Twilio and say, "Okay, there's no good information on the internet right now, or no good concentrated curated source of information for how to test a Twilio application." So I'm going to write that book, or you know, in 2013, even as a fairly accomplished Rails developer, I don't know how you would go uh, from getting someone from the point of, you know, I have a Git repository right now and want to deploy that as a Rails application. What's the best practice for that? You know, is it just use Heroku? There is no button on the internet that says click here to just use Heroku. Um, it's, a it's a little more difficult. How do you set up a... Uh, how do you set up a repeatable deploy process for Ruby on Rails? Yeah, just, quote unquote, just use Capistrano or just use Chef or just use Puppet. But if you wrote the consumable, like, here's a book that you can buy for $75, which is going to save you the next two weeks trying to view blog posts written about Puppet in 2011, which are using uh, command line parameters that don't currently work anymore, that would sell kind of decently. So if that's something that you do on a you know regular basis and you know where the pitfalls are and you know what the pain point is that's going to drive a developer to look for that. You can certainly package that up. And packaging up in multiple formats works kind of well. Nathan Berry is totally a genius at this. I think this is a trick that I will be using in my own info products in the future, but there's kind of a spectrum in um, people wanting to, how passive and active they want to be with the information. Whereas passive, like the passive approach is just 
I want to buy a book and read it and do all the work myself. And then there's approaches which are less passive, where like the outcome is more guaranteed, where I don't just want to buy the book, I want to be able to talk to other people about implementing the advice in the book, or talk to you about implementing the advice in the book. And then one, one level closer to the action or closer to the desired outcome might be rather than talking to other people directly or hearing advice from you directly with regards to other people, I want to just get on a phone call with you for an hour and talk about our particular circumstances such that nobody else can hear it. So that might be a good way to break down three tiers for fundamentally the same value proposition, but three tiers of a product which capture increasing amounts of value from the customer for deliver in increasing amounts of value for them in terms of getting them closer and closer to their goal of getting the application deployed or what have you. Exactly. And that's and that's a mix of the info product and the consulting package, right? So at the lower levels you're essentially just selling an ebook and at the higher levels you're selling your time again for consulting. But it's packaged in such a way that it is more repeatable than going out. You don't have to rain make for it, right? Right. It's work that comes to you instead of work that you have to go out and get. Mm-hmm. You don't even necessarily have to put in your time into the higher level packages, by the way. So, for example, if just the ebook is, you know, if you have the deploying Twilio applications book or whatever, if just the ebook is the first tier, and you can have a tier that costs uh, twice as much as or more for the ebook plus, you know, a Git repository of downloadable code samples that uh, they can, you know, copy paste into their own applications and start mangling until it works, or the ebook plus your recommended puppet script for getting a uh, a bare bones Twilio testing environment to put into production or what have you. And then, you know, on top of that, you could have the ebook plus a screencast of you setting up a Twilio application from scratch plus the puppet script or, you know, play with it, play with the tiers there. But you can have an incredible amount of additional sales driven from uh, customers who are not that price sensitive if you have additional value associated with the more expensive plans. Gives you an easy, consumable, what's the word, affordable option at the low end for people who just want to test the waters. And then for the people who are, you know, they've been fans of you for a while. They know you generally produce good work. They have a burning need for this in their organization. Give them a way to spend more money on you. Right, exactly, exactly. Nathan Berry has, uh, we'll probably link it in the show notes, but Nathan Berry has great blog posts about how he did a three-tier structure for some of his eBooks, like Designing Web Applications, which worked out very well, where the you know the first tier for just the ebook was, I think, in the sub $50 region. And then the middle tier was about two times that. The top tier was about five times that. That's actually something that I heard from the Gumroad folks. Um, Gumroad does fulfillment for info products. And um, they say that their most successful, A, their most successful merchants do a tiering structure. And B, the most successful merchants, be they selling you know business-to-business info products or even things like CDs generally have a you know 1x 2.2x 5x uh, breakdown into the pricing for the tiers and i don't think 5x is a ceiling by the way especially if you're getting into a more hybridized consulting offering at the high end definitely not definitely good place to start one of the reasons when i uh, released my first product last year the email thing that i didn't have a hybrid structure was because i just didn't have time to do any sort of delivery uh, in the several months after releasing it I thought, well, okay, I'll just do a one-and-done kind of thing. You know, buy it or don't buy it. But I didn't have many tiers associated with it. And then I had an idea, wait, um, you know, it's going to be downloadable and people can watch it at their own speed, but I'll just put a license on there for corporate use so that you could download it and, like, share it to your team at the corporation. And that required virtually no work um, on, on my part. It was just, you know, adding another 
I'm listening into the uh, possible checkout basket and writing like two sentences of legal copies saying, yes, you were allowed to share this with up to 100 members at your organization, and then putting a price tag on it. And the price tag for that is, I think, $2,000 if you buy it off the shelf right now. And surprise, surprise, people buy it because $2,000 at a software company doesn't really move the needle. And if they're going to make six figures plus off the implementation of the advice, then they're you know, they're going to want to cross their I's and dot their T's with regards to the uh, licensing of the things that they're using within the companies. Because that's a kind of a really uh, hot button issue at software companies. You know, you always want to know the license of code you're using and you always want to respect the IP rights of uh, people whose products you're using because software companies are basically built on that, right? Yeah, so micro tip, use a corporate license, charge 4x or 5x as much as the personal license, it's free money. So I have you have mentioned writing a Twilio book. I wonder how many, when we'll see the first learn how to use Twilio, the pitfalls ebook come out on Hacker News. <laughs> Please write that book. Like, seriously. It, yeah, it's a great, it would be yeah, great. steal that idea. Um, I'm never going to do it just because I didn't think that I am interested in Twilio. I do a talk like that every year at the Twilio conference, but it was never like the burning enough interest for me to actually sit down and do the work of writing that book. So if you're going to sit down and do the work of writing that book, please. By the way, if you are, you know, you might not think, oh, I don't have enough of a profile to do something like this. But if you write the definitive book on Twilio, you know who will be happy to help you get that book into the hands of as many people as possible? That's right. Twilio. Twilio. Because Twilio makes money when people make phone calls and SMS messages on Twilio. And since your book knocks down objections within client companies about well, yeah, we could use that Twilio thing, but no one, here, no, no one here knows how to use it. Twilio would happily send out an announcement about that book to their you know, list of 100,000 developers who are writing about the platform. I don't right. happen to and know so, they would be happy about that, but I rather suspect they would be. Now, this is something interesting. When you are working with platforms and talking to them, definitely talk to the people that you are writing about. If you're writing an AWeber book, I know the guys at AWeber would be thrilled for someone to write a book like that because it's free PR on their site. And like you say, it gets people using AWeber, mm-hmm. right? Same with Infusionsoft. Actually, it's interesting. If you go to Infusionsoft's website, you will be retargeted for ads for Jermaine Griggs stuff because he is the number one Infusionsoft marketer. They use him. They essentially have a group promotion thing going on, I assume. I don't know. So let's, I ass- let's talk about you and I just understood what happened there, but I think some of the folks who don't understand retargeting technology recognize the uh, importance of what you just said. So they basically allowed this consultant who uses their service to put a tracking pixel on their own website such that people who view their website are pitched his stuff when they go to other websites like Facebook or TechCrunch or what have you. They get those lovely right. little ads that stalk you around the internet in the top corner. Which are, which are highly obnoxious once you know what's going on. But, um, That's not true. If they, if well, were... I did not say... I did not say they were not effective. <laughs> They're not obnoxious if you are, if like it is genuinely, you know, the thing you need to do for work this week is to get Infusionsoft right. integrated. And those ads are exactly what you want to be seeing. Exactly, but, exactly. So they are, clearly um, he has a close enough relationship with them such that they're placing things on their own web pages at his commercial right. behest. So, and this is, this is conjecture on our part because I visited the Infusionsoft website and then I started getting those retargeted. I do not know any contract between the two, etc. I'm just saying that that is so that might the be view happening. that is happening. Okay. That might be happening. But what that does is it says, oh, I might be... So what you're doing is saying, someone who looked at Infusionsoft, oh, I might be interested in Infusionsoft, but I don't know how to use it. And suddenly you have all these advertising, you have all this information coming to you. It's like, don't know how to use Infusionsoft? Check out this book, The ABCs of Infusionsoft. Mm-hmm. Right? See how to get the most out of Infusionsoft. And 
What this does for Jermaine is it gets him customers for his book. What it gets, and for his consulting, what it gets in Fusionsoft is tons of new customers because they see, oh, this is really powerful. Oh, this is really easy to use. Mm -hmm. Now, in an ideal world, you would expect your technology platforms to be writing all of this documentation and giving it away for the customers for free. But how many technology platforms do you know out there that have ideal documentation written for them? And it's not even ideal documentation. For most companies, there was an interesting um, article on Hacker News that was, you don't know who your API users are. And it's the same thing. That's totally true. Um, Why don't we give the the brief uh, rundown in that article? Okay, can you can you give that real sure. quick? Sure. So the idea with uh, you don't know who your API consumers are, are that not all API consumers are folks like us developers who are um, used to integrating APIs and do this 15 times a week. A lot of them are power users of applications, so they're technical enough to understand that, say, uh, Gmail and Basecamp and name your favorite invoicing software, Freckle, or uh, Freckle doesn't do invoicing. Okay, so Gmail, Basecamp, Freckle, and FreshBooks could together be used to run a a web design consultancy. They're not technical enough to integrate those four APIs together, but they know it has to be able to get done somewhere, and they have some long-tail need in terms of, like, I want it when I send an invoice to somebody to automatically send me an email two weeks later to remind me to follow up with them. And that's something they could build in, like, 15 lines of code if they just knew how to use your API. So you should build your API such that it is easily consumable by people who are not technically developers but want to do it to build in the kind of 1% features that you're not going to build into the actual product. Right. And so it goes the same even if you're not on an API. So um, I use Aweber a lot my clients because my clients use Aweber. And I've talked to the guys at Aweber, and some of the comments I get is, no one uses Aweber like this. No one has gone this in-depth into Aweber. So there's always going to be these users, and there's always going to... And I don't think that we do that amazing stuff. We do what I consider a bare minimum, but there's a lot of ways that your customers are probably using your platform that you don't know about. Right. And that's totally true too. Or, you know, a lot of these uh, companies, there is only a certain amount that the people at the company can possibly know about the environment at any given, um, you know, industry or customer or use case. Like the Twilio has, well, north of a hundred very smart, dedicated people working for them. I'm willing to bet that nobody working at Twilio understands like the banking industry, like somebody who has worked at a bank for 10 years does. And so, you know, if you routinely grind out um, two-factor authentication apps for the banking industry, I bet you could write a very compelling book about two-factor authentication apps for the banking industry that Twilio would never be able to write even in 100 years. Now, whether you could sell enough of that to make it worth your while, good question. But considering that you're writing things for banks, you're probably charging them a very significant amount of money. They could also pay a very significant amount of money even for just the description of it. Um, a lot of the products that even just books and whatnot that are sold on very technical topics to industries that are washing money cost um, scads. Uh, there's a great book about the microstructure of the financial markets. That's not the exact title, but it's something like that. Like, It's basically how the various pe- pieces of U.S. exchanges talk to each other on a software level. And if you need to know that, like millions of dollars is riding on you not screwing that up. So that right. book costs, like, that is not something you can go and buy from Amazon for nine bucks. Right. And it all goes back to what is the cost if I was to learn this myself? And not only what is the cost if I was going to learn this myself, what is the cost if I was to learn this myself and fuck it right. up? What is the risk associated with that? You do not want to be the, the next, like, team lead in charge of Knight Capital, which, you know, oh, we hooked up a testing system to the real internet and then blew up our company. 
and did four hundred million dollars of trades in a day. Oopsie. Oopsie. <laughs> And that, that sort of oopsie is what's called a career-limiting move. So uh, given that people can often spend their company's money on avoiding career-limiting moves for themselves, that's kind of a win all around, right? Right. So let's see. Uh, we talked briefly about the productization uh, stuff and how people can get started on that. We didn't talk about email yet, so let's bang the drum one more time. If you're going to be selling anything, whether it's consulting services or whether you're thinking of productizing, you should really have an email list. You should be publishing something such that people get on your email list. And then you should do a nice job of like watering that email list or keeping it warm by periodically sending them things that they will be interested in. Right. Exactly, exactly. So I wanted to talk... Do you have an email um, list? Yes. Ask me how many mails I send out how to it. How many emails do you send out to it, Keith? I think I've sent out three okay. total. So I have an email list, and I've recently recommitted to emailing it every week, rain or shine. So I'm currently on you know, week one of one of that. Going to be week two as of this Friday. If you're not on my email list, by the way, on training.calzumius.com. I'll link it up in the show notes, but you should be on it. There was an email last week about what product companies can learn from consulting companies, which if you're listening this much into the podcast would have been very interesting for you. And there will be an email in... Uh, the next couple of days and what consulting companies can learn from product companies, which would also have been interest to you, which you probably won't get because you're hearing this podcast later. Well, the next thing that you will be interested in, you should be on the email list for it. So this is, this is the equivalent of like a sponsored ad for the podcast, except it's sponsored. <laughs> yeah. Listen, listen, um, subscribe to Patrick's emails. Um, don't subscribe to me, my emails. Cause I never send them. That will be coming in probably by the next podcast. You send them like, we're giving this advice to people. It's easy okay. for it's easy for us to give advice that we don't actually take. Like it, how it is. how hard is it actually going to be for you to write an email to that email list? Like if this was a consulting client and they say, "Oh God, I've got too many things to do. I don't have enough time to write an email." Does your consulting client really have enough time to write an email? They have enough time to write an email. I have enough time to write an email. You know, some someone said this. I don't remember who it was. You need to change the way you phrase things. You don't phrase things as in, I don't have time, because you always have time. Mm -hmm. You say, it is not a priority, mm -hmm. right? When you choose to not do something because you, quote unquote, don't have time, it's not that you don't have time. You could easily move something. It's a matter of priorities. And right now, where I am in the consultancy and where I am with my productization, it is not a priority to get those emails out, to be 100% honest. And it should be. It should be, but for myself, there is other things I need to be working on. And that's why I say in a month, those emails will start going out because that's part of the product plan. Right. Grind out, like figure out the 15 minutes that you need to write that email. And that email could honestly, like your first email could literally be the difference between not having enough time and priorities as a mindset. And you exactly. could, you know, just write two paragraphs explaining the thing that we just talked about. And then three examples of applying it to a business. And boom, done. That's an email. That right. uh, keeps your name in front of people and gives them some sort of uh, value to hang their hat on for getting uh, emails from you. And for many, exactly. especially the less sophisticated uh, consultancies in the room, that might be you know, like a mind-blowing mindset shift for them. Yes. Okay. So you will be writing emails. Right. I will write emails. <laughs> All of you who are listening to this. You don't have to have the info product written yet. Just get the landing page up for it, maybe with a little bit of a description on uh, what the thing you're going to eventually be selling is, and then just ask people for um, if they want to hear about it. Right, you know, give them their email address. 
and then just keep right. in touch with them about that. Um, there's actually a good so, example of that. Uh, let me see if I can find the email, or sorry, the URL for it. So while you're doing that, I want to um, jump in with two things real quick. And I want to, uh, I think after the email conversation, I think we're going to cut it because we're already at an hour and a half. Sure. But two things. First of all, like you say, before you even have the product, you can have an email list. Meteor, when they were just becoming a name, what was that, nine months ago, a year ago, something like that, all they had was a five-minute video, a sales page or an information page that said what they were doing, and then an email list that says, let me know more. And it was so compelling that so many people signed up. And suddenly they have all these people that they are communicating with and reaching out to every month, every um, week, whatever um, timeline they decide. And that, those have two purposes. One is just to keep your name in front of right. them. Because honestly, if Meteor had never emailed me again, I would never have thought of them twice. But because they email me about once a month, I guess, with new information, I'm always like, oh, I wonder what Meteor is up to. So it just it gives me an idea that they still exist. The other one is just amazing freaking content. This is a recommendation for everyone. I'm going to ask, do you know Wistia? Um, expecting people on the podcast to answer me. <laughs> um, Wistia does video hosting. So they're kind of like Vimeo. They're kind of like YouTube. But they are completely amazing. And they have probably the best email marketing campaign that I have ever seen in my life. I will plus uh, on that opinion. It is totally amazing. They are probably the only email that I will drop whatever I am doing to watch it because it's about generally about a five-minute video, less than five-minute video that tells you just amazing information on how to take better videos. Right. They're, they're well-made, they're very informative, and they're just quick little snippets. Right. And they knock down objections to using the product, like, objection, I can't take video, I don't have a good camera. They have a video how to produce production quality video using your iPhone, which is shot on an iPhone. And it's got a funny kind of ha-ha sensibility to it, but it's also funny ha-ha sensibility, which actually teaches you like how to shoot production quality camera footage on an iPhone. Like, you know, use right. a stand, lighting is very important, here's how to do the lighting. And then, you know, a few weeks later, they send you a video just on how to do lighting on a $100 budget that you can put together a lighting kit at Home Depot or Best Buy or wherever. Which was amazing. Honestly, the iPhone video and then the lighting video pretty much sold me on that email campaign, and I've listened to everything ever since. Right. And who are you going to use the next time a client needs video hosting done? I'm per- Wistia. Yeah, of course. At this point, I mean, again, they are not a sponsor. I use Wistia exclusively. I believe you use Wistia as yep. well. My current lifetime value to them, $3,200 and counting. Woohoo. And I continue doing it often because, you know, like... I suppose, theoretically, I could move some of my videos to YouTube or whatever, but why would I ever do that? Their product works very well, and I feel like I'm going in debt to them for making my business better every month just by teaching me things. Exactly, exactly. And this goes back to the same thing that we were talking about with Twilio, is that when they have more people making good video, they are making more money. Mm Right. The more people who are making good video, the more people who are wa- watching the video, the more people who are signing up for their service to make, to produce video and to distribute video, the better their company is. By the way, if Wistia didn't already have that lighting video, you could have made that lighting video and sold it. And Wistia would be happy to plug you to their email list about it, right? Yep. Or you could potentially have an arrangement where, hey, I noticed that you have a gap in your thing uh, such that people don't know Man, I don't even know enough about video to know what I don't know about video. <laughs> it's very true about customers, by the way. But if you, being a freelance videographer, 
know enough about video to know what I don't know about video. You could go to Wistia and say, your customers don't know this thing about video that Patrick doesn't know. We'll make this thing for them. And, you know, maybe we'll let you use that for some flat fee. You can give it away for free for all your customers. We'll sell it on a paid basis to other people. And that's right. a way to kind of underwrite your own uh, content costs without, like, taking on the market risk yourself because Wistia presumably has the scale to make it work such that, you know, you could go to a platform company and say, we'll produce this and get 5000 or $10,000 of guaranteed business from them prior to selling it. And then now that you have the production costs covered, you can uh, sell the marginal copies at 50 or $100 or whatever. And if it's a great hit beyond that, great. If not, well, you're not out any money. Right, exactly. Um, we've said this multiple times during the um, podcast, but you look at things like FreshBooks, and whatnot, they are very happy to promote people who are using their API, who are using their system to produce value to their customers. Because in the end, that gets them more customers. Mm -hmm. So whether that's an info product, whether that's an actual developed product, like something that hooks into the system that reduces a pain point, these companies will help you sell your um, information, your product, because it helps them in the end. Ooh, micro hint there. Um, you can approach any API company or product that you do business with routinely and offer them a trade like I will write something for you for example a guest post on your blog with a, a description of an integration that we did for one particular company and all that I ask in return for this is a little link at the bottom to say the landing page where you're going to um, ask people to sign up for your email list it's a great way to get your name in front of people and start developing the list which is an asset that you can use to sell your own stuff where you know, selling it directly from their blog, uh, that might be a harder sell for them. Right. Like attribution links, very easy sell. And you can still get yep. a kind of meaningful amount of uh, exposure based on it. Right. Plus, then that gives you something to put in your sales page as featured on the blah, blah, blah blog. <laughs> oh, that's social proof. But I think that's a conversation for another yeah, time. probably. All right. Well, thanks, everybody, for tuning into this edition of the podcast. We're hopefully going to be doing them on a knock on wood, more consistent schedule uh, going forward, although I think we've said that in five out of five podcasts so far. So I think we have, and we've been doing this, what, almost a year now? Actually, All, Over a year. Year and a half. Tell me closer to two, actually. Wow, that's mind-blowing, and we've done five. Yeah. We will work harder, especially since um, Patrick's getting out consulting, mm -hmm. and he will hopefully have more time in Japan so that we can get these made Yeah, now. definitely. All right, everybody, well, if you're uh, somehow not in our ecosystem already, you can uh, follow my blog at www.calzumias.com or again, sign up for emails at training.calzumias.com to be linked up. Keith, where can people follow you? Right now, they can't because I my product's under the radar and my consulting webpage is all in Japanese. So <laughs> you can always go to delphinet.com, which is delphi-net.com. Uh, if you can read Japanese, you're welcome to check out the blog and the company information. If not, uh, I should have something for everyone by next podcast. A micro tip for everybody, by the way. If you do conference talks or anything, not to grind Keith's nose in it, but have a better answer to that question than Keith did because you can insert yes. that at the back of any conference talk. It always works and takes you a minute to say. Um, yes. So anyhow, we'll see you next time. All right. Thank you, guys. Thank you.